Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Um, we are here now at the end of the book. We've made it. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that yet. We're, we're, we've almost made it. I hope uh, this series, this time in Ecclesiastes, has been uh, of service to your soul. Some of the, the thinking as we started out the series, if you remember, just as we are in a season of um, much uh, trial and difficulty in all kinds of different ways, um, and just th- everywhere you go in the scriptures, you'll find that life is filled with trials for God's people, for everybody. It's a fallen world, but Ecclesiastes really just has a way of sticking our nose in it. And uh, I think it's good to just be reminded that uh, none of these things are new. This is life. It's new to us, perhaps, in some ways, some of the the new uh, societal issues we face. But but life in a fallen world, uh, it has always been this way since Genesis 3. So hopefully the, the wisdom from this book and um, and even what we'll get here today in chapter 12 uh, has been helpful to your soul. So as we come to chapter 12, we do reach Solomon's conclusion. He's taken us on a difficult path, painful at times, uh, but he reaches his grand end here. And so I want to just read the chapter and then we'll uh, go through it together. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So as we work through this chapter, we're going to look at just three final lessons as we reach the end of the matter. And the first lesson is that life is short, and so live for your creator 
while you can. Life is short, so live for your creator while you can. Now, this is not new. This is really uh, just picking up from where we left off last week in chapter 11. Chapter 12 carries the flow. If you remember at the end uh, of chapter 11, verse 9, Solomon said, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And so we talked about this call uh, last time to live joyfully with an eye towards eternity and how this is not meant to be something that is put off until later, living for the Lord, put off until you're older, as Solomon addresses youth. And then in chapter 12, he continues. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He says to remember. So if you recall, again, from last Sunday when we took the Lord's Supper, we talked about this word remember. The word remember means more than just simply recalling some facts to mind. It is not simply a mental exercise. It involves living by faith, fearing God, a living life conscious of God's presence. It is living one's life unto the glory of God. And Solomon is saying here to do this in your youth. Now, youth is a bit of a broad category in the Bible. It's not simply talking about the teenage years as we sometimes perhaps limit it. Uh, it's a broad ra- broader range, I should say, that uh, includes a young man or a young woman as well. I think there's a temptation to think when we're young, especially, that serving the Lord and living our lives unto His glory, that's something that we maybe do later on. I'm just young. There's not much I can do right now. Uh, that's something for parents and, and older people that they do. Uh, but this is not the Bible's teaching. Rather, he says, to remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And so there is a way at the age of 10, 12, 16, 22, there is a way to live your life to God's glory. And this is what God's word calls you to. Now again, for those of you past your youth. This, of course, also is a reminder to remember your creator now. Uh, If your youth is past, to apply this would be to remember him now, to live your life unto his glory now, whatever stage you find yourself in. One commentator points out here uh, the appropriateness of Solomon referring to God as your creator. This is a reminder that he alone has this bird's eye view of life in which he can see the end from the beginning. And he completely understands, in fact, fact has ordained all things that come to pass. Uh, This understanding, if you remember throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon says he was pursuing this understanding. He was trying to seek and to know and understand all things and how everything fit together. And he keeps saying over and over in Ecclesiastes how understanding was just always out of reach and he couldn't quite get there. 
And even if someone claimed to know it all, they were not telling the truth. This is God's domain. He's been reminding us throughout this book. Back in chapter 11, verse 5, he said, You do not know the work of God who makes everything. He is the creator and you are the creature. It is a reminder of the proper distinction between God and man that we find again throughout Ecclesiastes. As Solomon is stressing to us over and over. And as Solomon makes this point to live out our lives in the conscious presence of the Creator and submission to Him, he has a final reminder here. It's kind of a drawn-out reminder, but a final reminder of the vanity of life. And so he says to do this, that is to remember your Creator, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What Solomon is saying is there's a day coming in which you will be old and it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult to take pleasure in those days. Even if you're young now, life is passing and will pass rather quickly. And there are coming days that are going to be difficult. Even just maybe getting out of bed might be physically a difficult task. And this is one reason, he says, to live unto God and to give him service now while you're young, while you're healthiest, while you're most capable in one sense. Now, this inevitable aging, at least it's inevitable for those who live long enough. We've seen there's no guarantees of that in Ecclesiastes. But if you do live long enough, aging will come. And with it will come the wearing out of your body. The wearing out of your mind. The days of no pleasure, as he calls them. And these days are poetically now described for us in verses 2 to 7. This is a uh, one last go-around, if you will, on the fleeting nature of life. Where Solomon now employs these various sets of images to depict the decrepitude of old age. So verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. On chapter 11 last week, if you remember, the sun and light uh, were associated with life. That's in verse 7. And verse 8, darkness was associated with death. And so he's describing here in verse 2, old age, as he's depicting it as the lights dimming. The clouds returning. It's an overcast night. The sun and the moon, the stars are not visible. This is his picture of this this dimming as we get older. In verse 3, he begins now to use an analogy of a great house or a great estate that is in decline. Verse 3. In the day... When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. Again, the imagery is of a busy, a once busy estate that is now in decline. You have servants or keepers who are in terror. You have the strong men 
maybe guards who are bent over. They're now weak. There's few workers or grinders that remain. And those who look out the windows, uh, perhaps being the women of the house, having dimmed vision now and not daring to even go out because of fear. Uh, this continues in verse, the middle of verse 4. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. And so work has ground to a halt here. It is lulled. The residents are old. They can't sleep. They rise at the sound of a mere bird. There's no more song and celebration in the house. They are instead now filled with trembling and fear. This is imagery of getting old and wearing out and approaching death. Others see in these uh, verses a metaphor for the various parts of the body that wear out with age. So the keepers of the house could refer to shoulders or perhaps the torso. Strong men could be that are bent could be legs or arms or the back. Grinding could refer to the teeth. Those looking through the window being dimmed could be referring to the eyes and so on. That's entirely possible that that's what Solomon has in mind. Either way, if you step back and just consider the images here, they're clearly of wearing out, of decrepitude, of decline, fearfulness. And he continues, in the middle of verse 5. It says, The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. The almond tree blossoming is taken by uh, most as a reference to white hair, a sign of old age as almond tree blossoms are white. Uh, the grasshopper dragging itself along is really a, an apt picture of a once spry youth now struggling along in old age. Uh, grasshopper is really a, a very good picture of something that is light and uh, has lots of movement. We have tons of grasshoppers around this summer. You see them, how effortlessly they jump and they go a long ways. I'm told by my children that if uh, they were the size of a human being, an adult, they would be jumping a football field. Uh, I think I have that right anyway. Um, so they're, they're light, they have incredible movement, but the picture here is of a grasshopper dragging itself along, perhaps injured, perhaps just dying from the cold and the turn of weather, but this once had an ability to leap very effortlessly and now just dragging itself along. It's a fitting illustration of a former youth now in old age. Solomon continues saying that desire fails. This in all likelihood is referring, Solomon is likely referring to sexual desire here. Uh, this is not actually the word desire. It is the word, uh, it's talking about a particular berry that was used, among other things, as an aphrodisiac, saying that this berry fails. Again, this sexual desire failing in old age, being past the point of such pleasure. You remember Sarah and Abraham and Sarah and her kind of scoffing at the thought of having a baby because she was 
beyond the point of pleasure. Right? This this isn't going to happen. And then Solomon interjects why these things are so. At the end of verse 5, as he comes back out of the use of images for a moment, he says, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. So very clearly, these are all references to a person nearing the end of their days. They're heading toward their eternal home. Those around them are anticipating death at any moment. There are mourners prepared and ready in the streets to mourn the loss of this person as they head toward their eternal home. This is poetic and I think a a moving description of death and it's a difficult one as well. Many of you have experienced this kind of decline. You've seen it perhaps up front very closely of a loved one family member, friend. Solomon continues, Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. So all of this snapping, breaking, and shattering is imagery of death itself, which is then made explicit in verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If you remember those words, that's the curse that God pronounced upon Adam and upon mankind in Genesis chapter 3 verse 19 after sin was introduced into the world. This is what Solomon is, has in mind, has in the background, as he says here that the dust returns to the earth as it was. He's talking about the person who dies. Back in chapter 11, again, verse 7, uh, we were reminded there of how we do not know the way that the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. If you remember... We don't understand how exactly God takes that immaterial part of us, the spirit, and and forms that into the person that's in in the bones that are in the womb, the body, the physical body that's in the womb of a child. We don't fully understand that. And now here he mentions that the man's spirit returns to God upon death as the body returns to dust. So God joins the spirit with the body, but then upon death there is separation again as the body goes into the ground and the spirit returns to God. Again, all of this is a a sobering picture of the final stages leading up to and then the actual death of a person. And then verse 8 declares what Solomon said at the very outset of this book, perhaps the, the, the theme of the whole book, the thing that he has been expanding on throughout in verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Life is fleeting. This is what he has been saying. If we are blessed, even with long earthly life, 
we'll nevertheless reach the point of old age before we know it. Life is indeed a vapor. However, if we simply leave it there, or if we just read this and it simply just makes us feel despair that life passes quickly, that days are coming, which we won't be able to easily take pleasure in, then I think we're really missing Solomon's point. What, what he's saying here is that this reality of the fleeting nature of life is really meant to motivate us to respond now while we can by remembering our creator before we reach that point. The wise person reckons with this reality that we're all headed to this point before those days arrive. Here's what Derek Kidner writes in his commentary on this. He says, So it is in youth, not age, that these inexorable facts are best confronted when they can drive us into action. That total response to God, which was the subject of verse 1 not into despair and vain regret. It points us to the present as the time of opportunity. Death has not yet reached out to us. Let it rattle its chains at us and stir us into action. This is what Solomon is getting at. Remember remember your creator in the days of your youth before these days arrive. Learn from the fact that these days will arrive and respond appropriately now. And so as we've said many times throughout this our time in Ecclesiastes, this book teaches us to reckon with death and to prepare ourselves for it now. And this is a key then to living out our days. And of course, this begins with realizing that the day is coming when indeed you will return to God. And it is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners that you can be forgiven and be able to stand at that time when you do return to God. And for Christians, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, having received pardon for sin, being justified, having received eternal life, the certainty of death is a reminder that today is the time to live your life unto the Lord, to engage in all the good things that Ecclesiastes has laid out for you, working to the glory of God, loving and enjoying your spouse and children, your family, worshiping God, receiving his good gifts with thankfulness, entrusting all your outcomes to your creator as you go about your days, and knowing that Jesus Christ has indeed secured eternal life for you. And so death, therefore, is not the end. And returning to God is no longer a complete terror. It shouldn't be a terror for you. This is what Jesus provides. Safe passage, if you will. Though you die, yet shall you live. Of course, Solomon is writing in anticipation of redemption to come. 
But when we put Ecclesiastes in the light of the whole of the scriptures, we see more clearly how Jesus provides the answer to the vanity that is declared throughout Ecclesiastes. And how when he returns to reign forever over the new creation, all of this vanity will be over with forever. And so the lesson here is to live your life unto your creator now. Today is the day to do this. To stop endlessly looking out into the future and agonizing about it and putting it all off. Certainly, prepare, try to understand what's going on, seek wisdom. But there are tasks before you now and today. Don't wait around until all of a sudden you find yourself in old age, till all of a sudden your deathbed is before you. And if you are older and you're looking back, on perhaps wasted years, maybe a wasted youth, maybe much more than just a wasted youth, if you do have vain regret, then confess this sin to God. Rest yourself, your hope, your conscience, your mind in the person of Christ and his work of securing forgiveness and redemption for all who trust in him. His forgiveness is free. It is received freely by faith. His pardon is complete and total. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson here is to receive Scripture's wisdom. Receive Scripture's wisdom. The wisdom of God is actually, some of it, is actually made available to you. As you live out your days remembering your Creator, God has given you wisdom. This is remarkable, and I would encourage you to just not pass over this too quickly, as it seems maybe obvious to some. God Himself has given you wisdom in His Word to guide you and lead you and help you. So verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So Solomon, the preacher, did not just write these words to show how clever he is or how wise he is. He's not just trying to convince other wise people of his days that he's smarter yet. He's not just trying to win an argument. Rather, he took great care to weigh and to study and to arrange Proverbs. This could certainly include Solomon's other works and the, we think of the book of Proverbs and what he did throughout his life. But it certainly involves the way he put together the book of Ecclesiastes. He sought out words of delight. He wrote words of truth uprightly. He is writing as one concerned about providing for the people over whom he was leader and king. Truth. He wanted truth and knowledge that would be of service and help to God's people. Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, 
and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. So a goad is a, is a spiked stick used for herding livestock. Uh, it's not meant to cause permanent injury or damage. It just hurts just enough to grab attention and to guide the animal. This is what the words of the wise are, he's saying. And so as we think of Ecclesiastes as a wisdom book, uh, it does this very thing. There are places in this book where it stings. But as we've said before, there, this is not here ultimately to destroy you, to deliver a mortal wound. It's meant to guide you, to help you, to get your attention. Moreover, he says, the collected sayings of the wise are like firmly fixed nails. They are something solid, something trustworthy that you can hang your life upon, your hopes upon. Further, this is more than just the words of a really wise man. At the end of verse 11, he says, they, talking about the wise words, of, the words of the wise, they are given by one shepherd. Some take that as a reference to Solomon himself, that he is the one shepherd. But this doesn't seem to make the most sense of the wording here. Rather, the one shepherd from whom ultimate wisdom comes is none other than God himself. And this is why the ESV and other English translations uh, capitalize the S on shepherd. The shepherd who gives wisdom as a goad is the creator himself. This is what Solomon is getting at. This is not just his own fancy. When commentator, one, uh, one commentator points out that this is a helpful supplement here by calling God shepherd. It's a helpful supplement to the, how he has referred to him earlier in, chapter one, in verse 1 as the creator. So if you think of God as the creator, which has already been stated, that reminds us of God's otherness. He is the only one who, again, sees the end from the beginning, who speaks all things into being. He's distinct and very different from the creature. And yet here, in verse 11, he's spoken of as a shepherd. And so the God who is far away in one sense as the creator and completely other and someone who can't fully comprehend is nevertheless the God who has drawn near, the God who cares about his people, who is a shepherd who has revealed himself and helps his people in kindness. This shepherd language is used of God in a number of places throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, very notably, it's used in Ezekiel 34, where he says there, God does that he would be a shepherd who would seek out his people. And of course, this finds its ultimate fulfillment in God the Son incarnate coming to earth, to be the good shepherd, as Jesus himself calls himself in John chapter 10. Jesus is the good shepherd who came to seek and to save the lost. And so Solomon here is revealing that he's merely the agent, the agent delivering 
wisdom from the ultimate shepherd, the Lord. The Lord is the source of true wisdom. He has inspired the scriptures, men like Solomon, to speak and to write wisdom and truth. Verse 12 then speaks, I think, of the sufficiency of God's revelation. He says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. I think we all understand that last line. I don't think he's condemning here any and all study. He's not condemning all books. But this is a caution about those who don't settle and land on truth and wisdom, but rather just endlessly search for it. Who won't receive God's word and be satisfied with it. It is indeed sufficient, he's saying. It is true. It requires study. And yes, there are works that can be helpful in helping explain and describe to us God's word. But if you're looking beyond what God says about something because you're not convinced that he has revealed enough or you're unsatisfied with what he has said, then I think this is what he is warning not to do. But rather to take whatever God has revealed and be content with that. Speculation can endlessly go on and it does and it has. But God has indeed revealed what we need to know. And so this is a call for us not to forsake the wisdom that God has revealed. God himself is wisdom, and he has revealed all that we need for saving knowledge, faith, and life. The second person of the Trinity himself took on flesh to reveal God to us and to purchase redemption for lost sheep God has sufficiently revealed the things we need to know about this world, about why it is the way it is, about the way of redemption, about how to live a life that's pleasing unto God. And this is all so very kind of God, given the fact that we deserve nothing from his hand. So let us be people of the word. Ecclesiastes is wisdom from above. God himself would have you hear this book and grasp these lessons and not despise or reject them as not being maybe very helpful. Doesn't necessarily need to claim to be your favorite book of the Bible, but it is God's word to you. Let us give ourselves to the wisdom of God. Finally, third lesson, fear God and keep his commandments. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And with these words, Solomon concludes this book.
All has been heard. He has said everything he needs to say. He has teased out different ways of thinking and different ideas and different pursuits. And he's reached the end. At this point, there's nothing more for him to add to this. And so he concludes that we should fear God and keep his commandments, knowing that God's going to bring every secret thing into judgment, whether good or evil. Now, I would suggest to you that these words could function in two ways for you, for anyone. These words could function as either a terror or as a comfort and blessing. For the wicked person, that is, for the person who is guilty before God and whose guilty conscience has not been dealt with, these words ought to be a terror. If you consider all that Solomon has said about the God before whom we will stand in judgment, that he is the creator, that he is the only one who knows all things and who sees all things, he says here he's going to judge the secret things. That he, he, There's no secrets to this being. And he obviously has all authority to judge these matters and to do so justly and righteously. And given all of this, if one is sinful and has fallen short and has things to hide from this God, then it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. But I don't think that Solomon is writing here at this stage in the letter in order primarily to further terrorize people at the end. I don't think he's trying to just hammer us and then, you know, drop the pen and leave. Nor do I think that Solomon is telling us to fear God and obey God so that we will earn a righteousness that will earn us a passing grade when it comes time for judgment. This is not the solution. Solomon has declared throughout this book, uh, well, for one example is in chapter 7 in verse 20, where he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes is clear with the rest of Scripture Nobody gets a passing grade. Everybody has fallen short of God's glory. And so if we read Ecclesiastes and think that the solution here is to simply try to earn a passing grade, then we've sorely misread the book. Uh, the situation is far more dire. And so I believe one of the implications then of the call to fear God is that we would seek God's mercy. The world is filled with vanity and frustrations precisely because there are no righteous people. Because man does not and cannot pass God's test, live up to God's standard, withstand his all-seeing gaze and his judgment. So to fear God then includes recognizing this very thing. And recognizing one's own personal sin and guilt and then to seek his mercy. To receive by faith the provision that God has made for your sins, namely the Messiah. And I think this, understanding this, 
It becomes even just all the more clear when we zoom out from Ecclesiastes and consider the entirety of Scriptures. And the fact that the whole Old Testament is pointing towards this coming Messiah, and the New Testament is declaring that He has come, and that He has purchased salvation, that He has returned to the Father, and He is coming again one day to consummate His kingdom. So to fear God is to recognize that God is God. He is the creator, whereas you are not. You are fallen. You are a creature. You are finite. You see only a tiny fraction of the larger picture, whereas God is the eternal one who understands all and is sovereign over all. Fearing God calls us to reverence then and a humility before this greatest of beings. And to truly fear God in this way necessitates a regenerating work of God in the heart. And this involves then faith. So I don't think Solomon is trying to conclude here with a really depressing bomb, this really heavy weight over your head. Well, just the conclusion of the matter is just be perfect. I don't think that's precisely what he's saying. He has in mind here a genuine reverence for God that comes from a renewed heart and that then issues forth in genuine fruitfulness in the pursuit of obedience. It's tempting to say here that when he calls for the fear of God, that it's synonymous with regeneration. Certainly, it demands it. And then as one who is trusting the Lord, who has a fear of the Lord, to then seek to obey the commands that God has given. As one trusting in Christ, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then God's commandments are no longer hanging over your head that they might condemn you to hell. They are now, rather, your guide. They're a good guide. They instruct you as to righteousness, as to what it is that pleases God, the God who has graciously forgiven and pardoned you. And this now is the aim of the believer's life, to live our lives in gratitude to our Savior by seeking righteousness, seeking to honor and obey our God. God has not left it a mystery that we would simply have to guess what it is that He desires or what it is that He loves. As the one shepherd, He has revealed wisdom for our own good to guide His people. In fact, Solomon says of fearing God and keeping his commandments that this is the whole duty of man. More literally, he says that this is the whole of man. He's saying that this is what truly matters in the end. After all that he has surveyed, this is what life is about. This is what he's saying.
So God in his kindness and wisdom was not content to leave the world forever stuck in this endless cycle of vanity, of generations coming and generations going with nothing permanent or lasting. Nor did God choose to just simply wipe humanity off the map once and for all, which he could have justly done. Rather, God in love, in kindness, in an abundance of grace and mercy has sent his son, the Savior, Jesus Christ, to come. To come to seek and to save the lost, to purchase forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and to bring about the eternal kingdom. And his kingdom is here in part now. It is entered into by faith in Christ. And his eternal kingdom will be consummated in full on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the day when he returns. At the time when all of his enemies will be made finally and completely a footstool for his feet. And when all those he redeems will be in the fold. All of this vanity that we see in Ecclesiastes, that we see presently now, that we experience and live out, the fleeting nature of life under the sun, all of this will be done away with. And the new creation will be finalized and eternal. This is the reality that Ecclesiastes calls out for, cries out for, screams for. And it is what God has indeed provided. And so as we await that day of renewal, we likewise are called to fear God and to keep his commandments. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that it is true that Not one of us measures up to the perfect demand of righteousness that is upon us, that flows out of your very character as the righteous God. We indeed sin and fall short of your glory. And so we praise you and thank you for grace. We praise you and thank you for mercy for sending the Lord Jesus to do what we could not, to deal with our sin on the cross and to earn a righteousness that we sorely lack and need. We praise you and thank you that this is available to us by faith. We know that by works of the law, no human will be justified in your sight, but rather that by the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, we thank you that in Christ your law is no longer there to condemn us eternally, but rather now presents a guide to us to to see that which pleases and honors you and to pursue it the best that we can, resting and trusting in Christ that we are yours because of what he has done and not because of our obedience. Father, I pray that this would become a delight to us. 
Father, that even as we see in the Old Testament, as David so delighted in your word, that the only way he could possibly have done that is as one who, who knew your mercy and grace, knew that he fell short, and yet knew that your law was good and right. Father, I pray that you would renew our minds that wherever we might be toying with sin, that we would remember that your ways are good and that sin is simply evil. Father, that we would freely and quickly confess that and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Father, we thank you that your word explains our world to us interprets what we see. I pray that we would give ourselves to the wisdom of your word. We thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but have given us truth and wisdom. Father, I pray that we would truly be reckoned with the fact that one day we will die and that we would now just be freed from the tyranny and the fear of death to live our lives unto you. Father, I pray that you would renew joy where it is lacking. Strengthen us where we are weak. Help us to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is seated that we would love the things that you love. Father, we fall so short of this and we just pray that for your own glory and namesake, you would do good work in our hearts. Father, we, may we look ahead to the return of our Lord with, with joyful anticipation and expectation and, and even joyfully endure whatever trials we might face today and in the days to come. We thank you and praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.